You're listening to The Morning Muster, where we get sailors together to talk about the most important topics of the day. So grab a cup of hot chai. Or a coffee. I'm Teresa Carey. And I'm Ben Carey. This podcast is produced by Morse Alpha. We offer rigorous coastal and offshore sail training expeditions. Check out morsealpha.com. This episode is brought to you by Edson Marine. Edson is well known for their steering systems. When we needed to replace our steering cables, which everyone should do about every 10 years or so, we contacted Edson and received wonderful service and advice. Everyone we spoke to was helpful and enthusiastic. We've since upgraded our engine controls and various other parts of our pedestal and have always found their craftsmanship to be excellent. For more information, visit edsonmarine.com. Today's podcast is about the race to Alaska. The race is a tough and quirky race with basically just one rule. You cannot have an engine aboard your vessel. And so some people have competed competed solo um, on a stand-up paddleboard, and some have crewed on a fancy yacht. Uh, The race starts in Port Towns in Washington and ends in Alaska, and the prize is $10,000 if you finish first and a set of steak knives if you're second. I have two guests with me. Katie Stewart is a salvage master at Global Diving, which sounds really cool, and I'm excited to hear more about that. She's completed the race to Alaska four times and is entering a fifth time, and this time she'll be sailing solo. Jeff Oakleaf has been sailing since birth all over the place from the Great Lakes, which I love, that's where I started too, to the Virgin Islands, and he's going to be sailing with a crew on Rough Duck, and this will be his first time competing. So the one thing that I like, and you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, when I think of the race to Alaska, I think that really the biggest prize is bragging rights, just finishing, having bragging rights. And if it really were about winning, then everybody would be competing in fancy boats, and it'd be like the America's Cup where part of the race is boat design. And But really, race to Alaska, I think, has just like a different vibe and a different culture. And you see all kinds of boats rowing, paddling, sailing, um, monohull, multi-hull. Can we, can we talk about that for a minute, like the race culture and what drew you to it? Yeah, well, you know, they like to call it the America's Cup for dirt bags, right? And a lot of effort has gone into making sure that it's not that high-end big money race because you can do it in anything and there are no rules and no classes. You might spend half a day racing against a paddleboard. The thing that makes it not a high-end race is the lack of classes. And the fact that everybody's just racing everybody. Sometimes I wonder if, if you know the race number is really super accurate. I mean, because it is really weird. I mean, you see uh, some pretty high-end fast boats competing against uh, Carl Kruger and his paddleboard. I, you know, personally, I think you know the chance of coming in first is uh, pretty is pretty low. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, and uh, weird things happen too. I mean, you know, expensive boats break stuff. You know, they run into logs. It seems snap rudders. You know, whatever could be eaten by a bear, right? That's why we're not stopping, by the way. We're just going up. We're not hitting shore because I don't I do not do bears really very well. You know, and, and to be clear, I haven't done the race yet, but, you know, just watching it, you know, since its inception, it really seems like it's more of like, you know, personal kind of a achievement and, you know, kind of goal thing than it really is a race. So without classes, does someone on a stand-up paddleboard have a chance? Yeah, because the circumstances are different every year. If, if, if it's a year with no wind, 
that paddleboard's going to fly by everybody else that is spending all their time trying to row some kind of a displacement hull through the water, right? Which is not the most efficient way to get somewhere if there's no wind. I mean, rowing a lead keel to catch a can is going to take a while. It's so true. And, you know, we we did do as kind of a practice race. We did the Washington 360 last year, and that was a huge eye-opener for us. I am kind of competitive, but not super competitive. You want to do the race, and you want to do the best you can. And you're looking at the list of entries, and you're like, ah, no problem. And you get out there, and it's like, you know, the first two days, the paddle boards and the, and the kayakers and the rowers are like half done with the race and you're like, you know, trying to push this thing through the water at two knots and you're completely exhausted. And, you know, it seems like uh, a lot can happen, you know, between, you know, the start and, and catch a can. Maybe you planned on taking a certain route and you were dependent on knowing that if you can pull that off, if you have at least three knots of wind, then all of a sudden you have nothing and now you're going backward and now you can't take that little opening through those islands. Now you need a yeah. new plan. It sounds yeah. like the lack of wind happens a lot up in the Northwest. It's either great or it's no wind or it's like just ridiculous. Yeah, it's really kind of an all or nothing situation usually on the race. You've, it's a, a gale or you're rowing. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not super excited about the rowing. We actually have a pedal drive. But, you know, after doing the Washington, Washington 360, I mean, I'm pretty sure that even Lance Armstrong hasn't pedaled for that long at one time, one sitting. I mean, it was like two days of solid pedaling on a bike. And you're not just on a bike, you're pushing. And there's no coasting, by the way. And so, yeah, brutal. And it also seems like uh, the reason why you know the boat choice may not be that important um, is that, um, you know, the, because those conditions are so varied. And also, this may be just local, although I've, I've kind of experienced it maybe in the Northeast, when you're racing or when you're going through the water up here, they're almost, if you're trying to get somewhere, there are these gates, right? And so there are tidal gates, there might be a weather gate. And so what happens is, you know, if the tide's adverse, everybody stacks up. If you make it through the gate before everybody else does, you're golden. But then you hit the next gate, someone, you know, everybody from the back gets wind and they come up and they catch or pass you. It's true. So, there are all these opportunities for someone in the back to catch up because everyone in the front got stopped for whatever reason, Seymour Narrows being the big one. But there are lots of spots like that that are kind of game changers and shift things up. You know, the other thing you just reminded me, Jeff, is the part that people don't talk about very much is the fact that, you know, you just created this whole contraption to replace your engine and maybe it looks <laughs> like you took apart five bicycles and made something happen. And what happens on day one with the first sea spray is the whole operation starts deteriorating. Everything starts rusting. So it's this constant battle to keep your crazy bike contraption running for two weeks or whatever you need it to. You you know, you stop for a minute and oil the whole thing down or scrape some rust off or take off the prop you just snapped or you're fishing seaweed off of this crazy, you know, three blade hobby prop that's four feet down underwater and you're, cause you're trailing 10 feet of kelp behind you. It's not just your standard propulsion. They break by any so means. <laughs> it's terrible. It really, ours, ours and the Washington 360 ours broke three times. This is another uh, part of the race that I really actually love. I mean, you know, call it a race or, or not. I mean, it really is a race against yourself and your ingenuity. Um, and oh, and tenacity, by the way, is very important, I think, in this race. But uh, there's there's an incredible, you know, if you're the kind of person who likes to mess around and, you know, figure out, you know, how to get things to move with whatever you have at hand, 
it's a great race because you know it takes a lot a little bit of ingenuity and it's an incredible uh engineering puzzle if you start kind of diving into it and when you take a look at what everybody comes up with there's no off-the-shelf propulsion system for a boat as, as it appears i mean there's some kayak stuff so if you have a kayak you're you know you're pretty good if you have a rowboat you're pretty good um but you know the rest is pretty much you know kitchen soup you just find what pieces you can and stick them together. Sometimes they break, sometimes sometimes it works. I want to talk for a second about the race course because I feel like a lot of this would have better context for our listeners understanding what the race course looks like. Uh, the Pacific Northwest is a really unique place, and I'm, I'm actually looking right now at just Google Maps um, of the Northwest, and some of it is protected waters with islands and things like that, and some of it is just open ocean, and anything in between. And so can you can you describe the race course and tell me about what you expect because of this? In particular, Katie, can you talk about the north part? I mean, I personally have been up to the north end of Vancouver Island. And it seems like, you know, that's all kind of, you know, you can stop for pizza if you really get desperate. But once you, once you leave the tip, you're like gone. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I mean, and there are so many different choices. So you have to be constantly assessing, you know, your boat's capability and what the weather you think the weather might be, you know, and how how much you trust Environment Canada's weather reports. But there are all these decisions to be made. Am I going to go offshore and try to get more wind and along with that come really big seas? Or am I going to try to duck through some of the long, skinny inlets where I know the mountains are really high and any wind that could be there might get blocked? And then along with that come all those little doorways where if you're on the inside, you know that the current's going to change at a certain point and you're probably not going to be able to fight it unless you have enough wind. You know, I can row on this, the boat I'm taking this year, I think I can, I'll be able to sustain about five knots for a really long time on some of the bigger boats I've used. It's like, you know, a struggle to maintain three. So once you hit that eight knot current in the wrong direction, you need to be hiding somewhere. So it's always kind of this countdown to uh, when do I need to duck and hide or do yeah. I need to try something yeah, different? Yeah, we're, we're at uh, three knots max. And- <laughs> well, Seymour Narrows is more than that. I see you, yeah. I see you see- waving your eight knots <laughs> <laughs> fingers there. But I mean, Seymour Narrows yeah. can be way more than that in the teens, yeah. you know, and you don't. I remember sailing because I've sailed in the Pacific Northwest a little bit and I remember seeing standing waves because right. the currents would be so yeah. strong. It's a little more, you know, sections of it are a little more like river rafting than, than, than not. So yeah, yeah seriously. <laughs> yeah. Especially if you can get some wind to go along with it and just, you know, surf your way to catch One a One thing that we talk about in our more selfish sail training expeditions, because we teach coastal and offshore sailing to, to people who usually want to go cruising. Um, we, they're always interested in this offshore experience and, um, what we usually teach them is land is the enemy is what we say. And um, it's it's when you get out into the open ocean, you can relax a little bit. But near shore, there's rocks, hazards. The currents are stronger. There's other boats to think about. Um, and so just seeing how much Race to Alaska spends inland among these islands that can drive these strong currents, um, it's really, I think, the only sailing race that I know of that spends that much time near shore where the race is actually more than a day. Probably five days for us. <laughs> you know, where you're going to have to sleep at some point. <laughs> well, yeah, and you have to remember, it's literally a marine highway, mm-hmm. right? So we're up there in cruise ship season, so you'll be rowing along in the dark. 
you know, in your own little struggle town. And all of a sudden the giant wedding cake lit up with disco music <laughs> pulls up behind you and you have to get out of the way, mm-hmm. you know, calling them to see, Hey, can you see me? And they're the long pause that's showing, you no, they cannot see you is, you know, a little alarming. This, they do have the option this year, I think, to go outside. I mean, I think you still have to, what, Bella Bella, right? And then you can go, or no, it's outside of Vancouver Island to Bella Bella. See, Katie reads the directions. I uh, really... You know what? We should double check. <laughs> we, should. we should double check that. Because, but I think that Before you start um, cutting corners. it's Seymour Narrows that I got the phone. I'm not going to right? check because we're not going to go outside. It doesn't apply to me. Yeah. <laughs> and we, we could do the outside. But yeah. uh, to me, the more fun and the more challenging part and the more exciting part is actually the inside. For one thing, the scenery is incredible. But it's the it's the puzzle that I really love seeing where the currents are, knowing when things change, when the direction changes, you know, trying to move your way around through all these obstacles. To me, that's the really fun part. And that's what I think makes, that's that mentality that I was talking about at the beginning that makes Race to Alaska so unique. Because you just said you're going inside because it's more fun and more challenging and a puzzle. You didn't say we're going inside because it's faster. No. It's the yeah, faster route. I, I think I think there are some boats that, you know, it depends on your boat, right? And mm-hmm. you know, every boat's going to have different attributes. And so, you know, that boat is going to do better or worse in certain conditions. And I think, uh, honestly, uh, if someone goes to outside and they have the right breeze and the right boat, that probably, my guess is that's the faster route. To me, it's just like, ah. But also, I mean, if you take a look at how foggy it gets out there in June, it's like pea soup out there. She knows. I don't mm-hmm. know. That. And that's stressful too <laughs> without an engine. So reading here from the website, the description of the race is it's like the Iditarod on a boat with the chance of drowning, being run down by a freighter or eaten by a grizzly bear. There's squalls, killer whales, tidal currents that run upwards of 20 miles an hour and some of the most beautiful scenery on earth. They said rocks, right? Um, they did say rocks. that is yeah. true. <laughs> yeah. There are so rocks. many rocks. Lots of rocks. Yeah. And the bears. Mm-hmm. I, I've only been chased off a beach on Van- north end of Vancouver Island one time. By and a that bear? Was the, that I vowed that that was going to be the last time. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> there was a team one year, and I I wish I could remember who it was, but someone did get chased back to their boat while they were taking a That's you know a little I'm break saying. on shore there yeah, to take care of some right. business. I mean... So I, I want to know then what you're, what you both are planning. Jeff, you're going with the crew. And not stopping. Um, Katie, you have to camp, right? Uh, yes. So I'm wondering, <laughs> what do you plan to do about watch keeping? Your, what do you plan to do for your watch schedule? Because, you know, it's not like offshore sailing where you could have one person on watch and that would be plenty. It seems, it's, it seems like standing watch is a lot more active in terms of navigating and pr- planning for the currents that you're going to hit and vice, and so forth and all the ships and whatnot. So what are you planning to do for watch keeping, Jeff, and then Katie, for you to get sleep? Katie goes first because I'm really curious. (laughs) Me first. Because you might learn something, right? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, for me, it's going to have to be dictated strictly by the currents and what I can fight. So my sleep breaks are going to come when I know um, the tide changes and I can't get ahead so it could i could be moving at night but you know you have to remember that time of year that far north you've only got about three hours of fully dark anyway so it's not such a big deal to keep rowing through you know midnight to three when you start to get a little light again if you're not tired well you're gonna be tired (laughs) yeah and that's part of it too is just constantly assessing where the stop is and are you taking like bear mace 
or like, I mean, because you have to sleep on a on somewhere, right? No, I'm actually not necessarily planning on going ashore unless I stop somewhere with a dock, you know, in Bella Bella or, or wherever. Um, I've got a tiny, tiny little sleeping ah, So you can anchor then. Yeah, I can. I've got a little tiny anchor and yep, I've got a tiny cabin. Just enough to put a sleeping bag in and hopefully get in and out of my dry suit in. I haven't tried that struggle yet. I haven't really read the maritime kind of recommendations on stowing gear, you know, while you're anchored to keep bears from swimming out. Is that such a thing? No, stop. They're not going <laughs> to. Let's not talk about that. Oh, no. We're not stopping. We're not. We're gonna... There's more for them to eat on shore. They're not going to come after me and my little. Okay. I have to pry it open like a can opener. It's, it takes work. Jeff, what know? are your plans for watchkeeping? Our team is really struggling like this. I'm, I'm a little bit uh, uh, handicapped here because the rest of my crew is not on this call. And it's something that we've been trying to figure out because when we did Washington 360, uh, the watch system was one thing that we thought totally failed. I mean, we did, we started the race. It was pedaling for two days straight. We were absolutely exhausted at the end of two days and everything just fell apart. And so we, we were, we didn't stop but we were also not going anywhere. We just were floating around out there. Not, you know, there was no wind still. You know, it was just, it was a, it was a mess. And so we started out with two hours. I came up with this really nice chart. It was like all had, you know, four people and four slots and everything was all staggered and had it figured out. So, but, but it just didn't work. I mean, uh, we had different people with different kind of abilities and sleep patterns. You know, we had a, had a 20 year old, which, you know, his pattern is like either all on or all off. And, you know, when he's awake, he's eating food and he's got a lot of energy, but then he just, you know, it's just like a big crash. And then we have other people who, you know, kind of more steady state, but, but we also had situations where, you know, like people would, would go to bed and then all of a sudden something would happen that would require that person. So I have more sailing experience than some, we have a guy in the crew who is who has done well. Two of them actually have done tons of biking, and so you know we're thinking, oh yeah, no problem. Go through the shifts, and you just never think that miraculously the conditions are going to be such that when the wind's up, you know, one the person who really has the most sailing experience is going to be awake, and that just never happened. So, uh, so there you go. It's going to be completely the opposite, no matter how try how hard you try to finagle that watch yeah. system. <laughs> so I was going to I was going to ask Katie actually. So the mm. thing that we're thinking now is that it, we're almost wondering if we if there's a way to figure out more of a looser kind of watch thing and uh, just uh, base it more on the conditions. So in other words, you know, when there's no wind, the people who really are the better sailors go to sleep, and when there is wind. You know, the people who are better bikers, and this is our for our system because we have we have you know a pedal system, but you know then they go to bed. Yeah, I mean, I, I, there are a million versions of this that can work, I think, and it just comes down to making sure that everybody knows what everybody's capabilities are, and that nobody's getting bent out of shape or you know with the situation and not getting enough sleep because you don't know what the conditions are going to be, you know. And we've tried, I've had. Everywhere from three to five crew, you know, in the past years. And we just usually kind of sit down and figure out which skills go together well. And then you have to create a hierarchy. If, you know, if the one person that's on watch 
needs help, you know, if you're going to the person before you or the person after you in the schedule, you have that all pre-set up and you match up skill levels. If you've got someone that's barely sailed, you make sure that their go-to if they need help is someone with more sale experience. But you're right too, that the whole thing can derail if you get into a situation where you need all hands on deck with your people power, because that ruins somebody's sleep schedule. And there's not really a way around that if you get into a spot where, you know, you need that half a knot and that means and two more people happen. awake because yeah. Yeah. there's yeah. a rock. Mm. <laughs> yeah. I think it's just, I mean, you did, you did just the right thing. You have to have a pre-planned schedule and it can't just be chaos, but you could have maybe a theoretical heavy weather schedule and then a no wind schedule and that might solve you some of it. You have to have a schedule, you have to plan a schedule, but have a mentality of flexibility. Yeah. So that you can adapt anytime you need to. Yeah, that except you can only I mean the interesting thing is and the thing that we totally missed was that the you know there's a huge physical component. It's not like you're out, you know, like people who race boats, you know, you know, and you go out on a race and you're like, you know, it's either a weekend thing or whatever and you may come back tired, but you're not you haven't been rowing or pedaling this boat for like the last, you know, 12 hours and the although the shift thing has some impact on that, you know, there's, there's a mental, I, I think I like what Katie says about the flex or someone said something about flexibility. I think that is important, but I think you also have to realize when you're, when you are the person on, on deck and you're awake that, you know, the, if something happens, you know, you're going to have to get ready for non-response. And I'm, I'm just thinking about like the last day on our race on the Washington 360, <clears throat> we had two people up, two people asleep. And we were getting swept in between Smith and Minor Island. And if you don't know where uh, about that, there's a little spit. It's about six inches underneath the ground or underneath the water. And the and the current just rips through there. It's like a sucking black hole. And so <clears throat> we were trying to get around that and no wind. And we were just getting swept right to that hole. And so, you know, I've turned the boat. So we're trying to get out of it and pedaling away. And, and you wake up the two other people. And it seriously took me probably five minutes to explain because, you know, we're going one way and we're supposed to be going the other way. You know, the boat's pointed left. We're supposed to be going right. But the boat is really actually, you know, kind of going, you know, 90 degrees to that. And to explain all that, what's going on to the person who's coming up to help is just, you know, it's hard. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Katie, help me out here. Or have some overlap in your watches. You know, you set up 15, 20 minutes for the handoff. Right. Yeah. But it really is just a set and drift game, 100%. It's all eyes on your set and your drift every second. Yeah. One thing that um, that we've done, not in Race to Alaska, we haven't done Race to Alaska, but for watching for watches, is we'll have two people on watch, but we'll rotate. At every watch change, we'll only rotate one yes. person. Yeah. So if the watch is six hours long yeah. or three hours long and you're – you know, or every three hours you're changing one person. So you could be on watch for six hours, but you'll be with, and then also you get to be with other people and, yeah. um, and you have someone fresh and someone maybe a little bit tired and, um, and then you could take 20 minutes to explain to them if you need to, needed to, or they can just switch because someone's on staying on who has been in it and they're going to continue on with it. But it sounds like a lot of this is really just like, uh, um, you know, you have to be a sailor, you have to be a biker, you have to be a paddler, you have to be a navigator, all these things. But really what it comes down to is you have to be 
flexible, adaptable, and have just like a mental toughness about you to to take what comes at you. And it, and it makes me think of this. I'm going to kind of go on a tangent here with the story. I was in, once invited to be on the show Naked and Afraid. Have you guys heard of that show? I haven't watched it. But... <laughs> I haven't watched it either. But, <laughs> um, but a, a producer called me up and said, we want you to be on the show. They, they said to me, we want you to be on the show. We think you're rugged. We think you can do this, and we think you're pretty, but not too pretty. <laughs> oh, like, thanks. <laughs> thanks for nothing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and then they explained to me the premise, uh, which is basically a man and a woman who don't know each other are paired together naked and placed in the woods or in a terrain um, with just a few tools, and they're expected to survive for three weeks. Um, yeah. This sounds evil yes, and horrific. My, my first thought was, my first thought was, <laughs> and I asked this of the producer. I said, "What kind of woman would want to be naked in the woods with a strange man for three weeks?" <laughs> and um, her response was, "Well, many people do this because they want to prove themselves, or prove to themselves, or to someone else that they can do it." And um, I ultimately decided not to do this show. I didn't need to prove it to anyone. I knew I could do it, but I didn't need to prove it. But I feel like Race to Alaska is a similar type of challenge. It's really rugged, really hyped up. No one's in it to win it, really. Um, they're in it for something else. So what are you guys in it for? Katie? <laughs> uh, I think year one for me was just just like you said. I just wanted to see if I could do it. And I wasn't at all sure that I could do it. I mean, aside from the fact that I was using, you know, a homemade boat that I dug out of my bad dad's backyard that he built, you know, 20 years ago, it was full of pine cones and squirrel pea. And, you know, I took my sister who didn't have a lot of sailing experience at the time. And then another friend that I hadn't seen in what, 15 years. And we hopped on this boat with very little practice time. And I honestly had no idea if we were going to make it. I don't think any of us did. Um, so yeah, seriously awesome sense of accomplishment. But then I realized that it was going to be different every year. So just doing it once doesn't necessarily mean you can do it again with a different tool and different weather. But what's that thing they say, you know, if it's not a skill until you prove that you can do it three times or what I forget how that goes exactly. But you know, still the second year, I wasn't totally sure that we were going to make it. Um, this year alone, definitely You'll not sure it. I'm going to make it. I think it. if anybody's <laughs> going to make it, you're going to make it. I mean, I think Katie has the tenacity <laughs> that is, you know, that is really required, you know, regardless if you think you're going to win or not. And I know a lot of people who enter this race and think they're going to win. I mean, there was that, uh, that, you know, 30 knot capable trimaran that, you know, tried it, didn't make it. There's another sub sub 30 trimaran that tried it, didn't come in first. You know, so it, it is the it is the mental toughness. I think for our team, you know, the main the main honestly the main reason we're doing this is because it's just a bunch of friends of mine. We thought it would be kind of cool, you know. And we're gonna we're gonna give it our best shot. And uh, you know, we're all working pretty hard on it. And you know, it's a great challenge. You know, it's a more of a personal challenge. I think the you know as far as figuring out the magic equation, I don't think that's even really possible anymore because I think the the best equation was when they had the thousand dollar boat or ten thousand dollar boat buyback program, and a guy a guy finished and took the ten thousand bucks in a in a beach cat that I think he bought for two grand. <laughs> so they don't do that. That really was like yeah. the ultimate equation to me because uh, you know how do you get to Alaska in the cheapest boat you can get 
and and finish and be the first one who's willing to you know swap your boat for ten grand. I really yeah. wanted to be that that person that year. Yeah, I was really yeah. shooting for that one. <laughs> I had a twenty five hundred dollar boat, and that's I didn't right. ever need to see it again. That's right. And so that's just you know maybe they decided that was just one more puzzle too many you know on top of the you know the rest of the puzzle camel here. But so. I think it was just that they couldn't figure out then what on earth to do yeah, with a knack catch Yeah, get, you got to ship it back. What do you do? Yeah, that's true. And then you just <laughs> lost 10 grand <laughs> on a boat you can't sell. That's, that is, that's probably it. Um, but. One of the founders of Race to Alaska is Jake Beattie. Do you guys know Jake? Both of you? Absolutely. Um, yeah. Well, uh, Jeff, you'll probably meet him, Hopefully, right? Yeah. When you'd go to do the race. So I met Jake years ago, like a long, long time ago. And um, we, uh, this, I, the, to me, gives me the an idea of the kind of person he is who would come up with this. He and I sailed on, uh, we worked together for Outward Bound in the Northwest, and he was my co-instructor on a course. And um, and this was like maybe the first year I ever worked for Outward Bound, the first year I ever, like very early in my sailing career. And um, so I was learning from everybody that I worked with, including Jake and um out, for, for those of you who don't know, Our Bound is uh, like a rugged wilderness training program. In this case, it was on sailboats that are open rowing sailing vessels, very primitive, and uh, with teenagers. And um, he had this idea for our course so that we were going to rough it. I mean, already Our Bound roughs it by most standards. But he said, we're going to rough it on this trip. So he had the students, when they arrived with their backpacks and their suitcases, they had to run to the boat and strip down and swim out to the boat. That was their, like, initiation. And then he said, when we were packing the boat, there's going to be no luxuries on this boat. And like I said, it's already not a luxurious boat. There's no cabin even. We go to the bathroom in a bucket, cook on a camp stove, um, and put a tarp over us to sleep. And so he said, there's going to be no luxuries. And so we didn't sail with any, we didn't have any condiments. <laughs> this was this was his creative idea. No condiments. We ate plain bagels for breakfast. No jelly, no cream cheese. <laughs> <laughs> that seems particularly evil. <laughs> she got room for a ketchup, yes. right? I mean, come but on. then it gets even more interesting. He had me sew him this fleece poncho, and I it makes me think of like a back, uh, Batman cape because it was long, like almost down to his ankles, and it had a hood, and it was black. And so I put pointy ears on it because it reminded nice me touch. of Batman, and it and it had a hand warming pocket. And he decided that's the only thing he would bring for warmth. And he wore it every day. And he didn't bring a sleeping bag. He'd wrap himself in this poncho and get in his bivy sack each night. And um, and all he talked about on that trip was his dream to uh, build a umiak and row sail to Alaska. Break, 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 break. This is Ben. We decided to get Jake Beatty on the horn to hear his perspective on the origins of Race to Alaska. So the following is a conversation with Teresa and Jake. I just wanted to ask right off the bat, what motivated you to start this crazy race in the beginning? I mean, so the race was born out of a few things. Uh, and one was, I think, professionally, I've been at the Maritime Center as the executive director for a couple of years, and we had just gone through some scary times. Uh, and we were kind of through the other side. We were through like kind of the crisis bit. Like the idea was a little bit of a release for me. And it was a release from like the way you're supposed to do stuff. I feel like, especially in the outdoor education world, the outdoor recreation, it was just like the world at the time, this is like in 2013. So it's a long time ago now, but 
it felt like my <laughs> both that world and also like my role in it like it just had an increasing amount of like very systematic ways to say no right and it, like there's there's all the insurance system and liability and just like the stru- the structure of the nonprofit world in the in the world of like outdoor activities it just felt like it would like the walls were closing in and so I was through like this crisis moment at time at work and I just like and it's like also it was like in the in the wake of of a of an America's Cup and I think it was the one that was in San Francisco where I just got really yes. like kind of grossed out by this like this pinnacle event in this in this activity that I love so much um but like the reason like I don't connect with the America's Cup is because mm-hmm. like I can't there's nothing in the America's Cup that gets me more connected to the water. Like I can be really enthusiastic about how how far technology mm-hmm. can go, but it's also like it's so inaccessible. It's inaccessible to me. I'm never going to sail on a boat like that. I'm never going to. I'm, not, I'm never going to have the skill. I'm never going to have the eighty million dollars they spent on two boats that now don't aren't even boats anymore. And it just kind of got grossed out by all the structure, all the money it's required. And I was just like, the thing I care about mm-hmm. sailing and being on the water is like the connection I feel to the natural world when I'm out there. And there's gotta be a way for creating a race or an activity like that. Mm-hmm. And do you think you accomplished that with the, with the race to Alaska? Um, yeah, actually I do. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I feel like I know what you're talking about because I kind of come from the same world as you with outward bound and yeah, and there's like definitely a deep connection to the landscape and the water being in those, the outward bound boats, you know, just like literally physically being so close to the water than any other boat I've sailed on. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I know what that feeling feels like. And it's definitely what draws me time and again back to outward bound as being one of the most formative sailing experiences I've had despite sailing on all sorts of boats. Yeah. No, and it's, it's funny you say that T or Teresa, sorry. Um, you can call me T. <laughs> okay. I, I, well, you introduced yourself as Teresa at the beginning. It's like, okay, I'll try to remember that. I don't know how she is in the podcast. Um, <laughs> people don't often call me T anymore, except people that are close to me. So you can call oh, me T. Okay. Well, the Outward Bound DNA is pretty deep in this because it's pretty deep in me. The thing I didn't know we were doing was essentially creating expeditionary learning opportunity for a bunch of people, but we were doing it in this way where all we do is pose the challenge and there's no instructor in the boat. Like it's a self-studied expeditionary learning that we call a race and it is a race, but like didn't anticipate that happening when we started But like we basically created opportunities for people to do their own hour bound course. Mm -hmm. You basically created the final expedition. Totally. That's yeah. With no precursor, everything. (laughs) It's just all final expedition. (laughs) So what's next for Race to Alaska? I mean, how is this going to evolve? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, in the first the first few years we tried, I mean, the first year was new. It was new to the scene and it was like a fresh riddle. And then every year we've, we've tried to add a new wrinkle to it. Um, and this year, boats can apply actually to do a route that goes into the Pacific pretty far on the west coast of Vancouver Island um, and then meet back up for the for Bella Bella which is a much different choice. And I'm not sure anyone's actually going to do it. I think people might wait till they read the weather. And when they leave Victoria, they'll know whether they're going to turn right or turn left, basically. So that's the new one is that there's a significant opportunity for offshore, which might change the boats that show up. Who knows? Yeah. And so have you ever done the race? 
No, God, it's a horrible idea. Don't, no. <laughs> no, I'm just, I'm just the kid daring you to lick the flagpole, right? That's me. That's my job. <laughs> I'm not oh going to lick God. the flagpole, T. Are, are you planning? <laughs> are you planning? I mean, I mean, so, I mean, basically, this is the trip I've always wanted to do. I almost got to do an engineless, self-supported trip right around the same time we were all at Outward Bound. In fact, with a couple other Outward Bound buddies, we, were, we built an Umiak. So it was a skin-on-frame expeditioning boat that was got oars and sails. And for whatever reason, that kind of blew up and the boat went, but I wasn't on it when it went. So I think it's been something I've wanted to do for 20 years. Uh, and I've done it on other bigger boats. I, you know, I used to work as a commercial mariner driving small freighters up to Alaska. So I've seen the route, but I've never gotten to do it the way I want to. I probably wouldn't do it as a race. I'd, I would love to take six months and do it in something small and rowable with a cabin. Ever since I saw your very first video that you guys made about the race to Alaska, when you were offering it the first year, I was like, oh, I really want to do this. Like I you said, we talked it's like about your it. own outward bound experience yes we did and i was talking with hannah about doing it with her the hardest part i think would have been the logistics of figuring out how to train on a boat here and then get it over to the west coast and then up to alaska and then get it back from alaska i mean the cruel joke about the race is it's a 750 mile race that leaves you 750 miles from where you started <laughs> 750 miles from nowhere <laughs> it's like yeah 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 we, i mean we, and every year i feel like and there's people who like show up in ketchikan they're like so now what and we're like i don't know you should have thought of that before <laughs> oh yeah mm-hmm. yeah i would like to do it just for the personal challenge of it but I just don't know when it's good. And then, you know, I stopped wanting to do it when I had my child. But I feel like now he's a little bit older and I think I could take off for a little bit of time. Yeah. So maybe. Or bring him along. Um, he, could, he could be the youngest. I had a, I had dreams of doing it when our daughter was young to do it when she was like in a baby Bjorn, just like strapped to my, strapped to my chest. <laughs> then luckily my wife's smarter than I am. So, you know, as I was talking to Jeff and Katie and the whole idea of Race to Alaska, I mean, there's no race really like it. And then I also remembered you asked me to make you this fleece poncho. Do you remember the poncho? Yeah, I still have it somewhere. No way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I haven't used it in years, but I was I was digging through, I was digging through uh, all like old outdoor gear and it, there it was. I was like, yes, the poncho. It's I feel like we need to brand that and sell it with the Race to Alaska package, you know. There we go. There we go. You cannot have an engine, and the only clothes you can have is this poncho. Please poncho. Because it wasn't the thing with the poncho. It was also, it was the privacy screen for using the bucket. That's right, because it was big enough. It was, it was like down to your ankles practically, so... Yeah, you were lucky in that one. Yeah, I think yeah, yeah. I was probably jealous of bucket. that, but I certainly was not jealous of not having any sleeping bag or, you know, zip-up jacket or anything like that. That's right. I, I probably probably smelled pretty bad by the end of that course because it was like what I slept in and stayed warm during the day in. Yeah. All right. That was super cool. Thank you, Jake. Uh, let's get back to the podcast. Where were we? We were discussing the No Luxuries Outward Bound course, I think, and the decision not to bring any condiments. That's right. Uh, that, that sounds like our food program a little bit. I mean, uh, I'm not really a very good food planner. None of us really are, apparently, because <clears throat> you know our, our program is the little container of freeze-dried stuff. Uh, I think the Washington 360, we decided after that, we decided we needed more kind of easy to eat, like protein snacks, things like that. Uh, You know, you can't eat too many of those, uh, 
you know, energy bars, granola bars, they're too sweet, actually. You know, after a while, you just burn out on sugar. And, you know, especially if you're working super hard. And, uh, you know, the other interesting thing is, I don't know, Katie, you, I'm sure you know more about, you spend a lot more time kind of offshore and all that than I have. I'm, I'm more of a coastal guy. But you really, at least if you're pushing it hard, I don't think you really have time to do a lot of fancy cooking, right? I mean, you don't have time to whip out the skillet and do whatever. And especially if the conditions are rough. I mean, so we kind of keeping it with stuff we can just heat up with boiled water, uh, you know, reconstitute or, you know, so coffee, hot chocolate, and then anything we can, we can add water to. Or beans, like you could, in an emergency, you, you could eat them right out of the can. Yeah, you could. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, my big thing this year, and, and in past years, we've kind of put a lot of effort into eating really well, like really well. We'll dehydrate all our own food, including meat and, you know, put a lot of time into making sure there's really good food. Cause when you're really cold and really tired, something hot makes all the difference, but I've also had a lot more space every year. So this year I'm having to think more about even things like, I don't want to count on rehydrating food because I'm not going to have a lot of water storage oh, either. Yeah. So some things it makes more sense to not have dehydrated, but it's also not cans. Um, but yeah, I'm putting a lot more thought into it this year and, you know, I can, I can only bring, I think it's 600 pounds total. So, you know, planning in water stops because I can't carry enough for the whole trip and and things like that. Yeah, the water is a big puzzle too, because on our boat, you know, the more weight we add, the slower we go. It's a very weight sensitive boat. And, you know, when you figure, you know, a gallon per person a day and you figure you're going to be there five or six days, you know, that's a ton of water. And so, you know, we're still going to try and put all that water on board and go. Uh, because, you know, I was looking at the map and Katie, it doesn't look like really, if you want water, like if you just want to stop and say it, you're looking for a hose, you know, like there's one spot like towards the North end of Vancouver Island, you know, before you have nothing. There's a little spigot behind the library in Bella Bella. (laughs) Write that down. (laughs) Really? Yeah. Okay. So, okay. So you can get water in Bella Bella then. Yeah. Yes. But you're right. Once you get North of Campbell River, you know, you have to start thinking about that a little more. And you, no matter what, you've got enough water to get that far anyway. So right about the time that you're running out of water, that's when you need to start looking for the spots that, that you can fill up. So I want to ask about these, going back on the topic of luxuries. I know that <laughs> it's good to pare down and, and keep the boat light, but I also think that having a few luxuries is really valuable. You know, just to keep the mindset in such a way that you can keep going when it's really, really tough. I think about the story of Shackleton and his men when they were stranded on the ice and they had to start walking across the ice. They're like, okay, but let's bring all the food that we need and the survival gear that we need, but let's also bring the the guitar and the Bible because that will keep our spirits where they need to be to survive this grueling challenge. And so my question is, what are your little luxuries, your trinkets or toys or, you know, the things that aren't necessary except for that mentality piece? Uh, Well, if you go back and watch uh, some of the clip of the day videos, you will see that my team almost always has music on board. I should say every year except the first year we had the ability to make our own music. And that's uh, only because the first year we didn't have any musicians on board. (laughs) But there's always a guitar or a ukulele or and lots of just monkeying around like we really don't take the process seriously so 
if you watch any of the videos that have any of my teams in them, that's usually just ridiculous. They're worth a watch. Laughing yeah. and playing music and really not getting anywhere very fast. Uh, the tooth one, that was you, right? That was us. The yeah. 12 days of yeah. R2AK, that was you guys too, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah. See, I mean, it goes on and on. There's like a top 10. You have to entertain yourself. You, it's yeah. all about morale, right? You gotta. You can't take yourself too seriously and you have to find ways to entertain yeah. yourself. I, I agree <laughs> with that too. And, and I think uh, as far as our team goes, we're not really bringing anything special. I mean, none of us are really that musically inclined, I don't think. You know, the interesting thing is, is that we knew each other in grade school and we went all the way through college together. And then my son's joining us as well. And so, you know, the banter and the and the goofing off part really is the, the entertainment mm-hmm. for us, I think. It has to be. Yeah, that's <laughs> key. I think, I think it is important. The crew choice, I don't know, and it sounds like Katie's got the sweet spot there, you know. I mean, if you, you're going to be cranky at times and, you know, everybody's not going to be working at their optimal level. And if you can deal with that and you know the people and you're, you're not in a situation where someone's, you know, becoming super irritated with someone, you know, you got to have that. So, Katie, do you think you'll become super irritated with your crew this year? <laughs> Absolutely. Nonstop. It's going to be really hard to keep morale up this year. But so funny story, though, um, my third year. So that was what, 2017, 2018? I don't know. It's it, it does blend together a little bit at a certain point. But I had a crew of five um, and not one of them had met any of the others. Everyone knew me. No one knew each other. That's awesome. Until the day before the race. It sounds started. like an Outward Bound course. <laughs> it was so what, Which year was that that you did that? It was the year we raced the – okay, you guys, I rode a Beneteau. Yeah, that's again. 34 and a half <laughs> foot wow. Beneteau with a wine rack and uh, an actual head. Nice. Um, so we had five people and no one knew each other. That sounds like a lot of fun. You know, I there was a time when I wanted to do Race to Alaska. It's why we're having this podcast episode. I'm fascinated by it. And um, I even had some momentum toward it at the time I was planning to do it in a Portland Pudgy which is an awesome oh my rugged <laughs> dinghy, rugged dinghy and lifeboat, but really slow. And, you know, the, the it's great for survive, survival at sea. It's great. It's great dinghy. It's perfect for what it's built for, but it wouldn't have been ideal for the uh, race to Alaska. And so, um, but I wasn't in it to win it, but I also didn't want to finish a month after everybody else. So, well, um, I mean, even, even if you get tagged out by the sweet boat, I mean, you know, I think yeah. the people who are in those boats really, I mean, you're like, there have been people that have gone ahead and finished the race after the sweet boat. Yeah. And so, I mean, you know, going back to that kind of individual goal thing. It's the tiny boats that have the real adventure. That's totally yes, but true. I, I wanted to be there for the party too. So I thought I'd need a slightly different boat. Um, and as I was planning and thinking about it, I realized it was too costly and logistically challenging for me to get a boat and get it to the well, northwest. That's, that's part of the puzzle, though. It is. I mean, really, I mean, you can get a super cheap boat, and a lot of people have gotten super cheap boats and, and done the race. Well, you know, I'm still interested in doing it. So if anyone is listening and, you know, I, I had a baby, <laughs> but now I feel like I could take some time and do it. If anyone's listening and wants to see me compete in this solo or with another person and sponsor me, give me a call. <laughs> but um, what kind of boats do you see in the race? Every, yeah, what don't, what don't you I see? I, I'm trying to figure out of a yeah. boat type that hasn't been in there yet. The Sharpie, the aluminum Sharpie. Was there two aluminum, two aluminum sharpies. sharpies? That's right. Paddle boards, kayaks, uh, like a like a two two man row rowing shell. So I've used, like I told you, the homemade trimaran from 
early 90s. Uh, and then the next one was a full keel fiberglass sloop from the 60s, a Columbia Sabre. Nice color too. Really cute, super sexy, really heavy. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then the next one was the Beneteau. So like rowing a bathtub, you know, in comfort, mm-hmm. but it's a struggle. And then the next one, I borrowed a friend's um, farrier, so F-27. And you have to get these boats back home from Alaska too. Yeah, Katie, mm-hmm. talk about that. How do I do that? <laughs> um, I have uh, parents that like to sail <laughs> and I give them the motor back <laughs> in order to get the boat mm-hmm. home traditionally. So the Beneteau had an inboard, a Volvo uh, Penta, or I forget. Did you anyway, take that out? You unbolted yeah, the engine yeah. and took all that yeah. out. I ripped that puppy out, <laughs> lowered it down onto the ground in the shipyard in Port Townsend using the boom, put it on a pallet, sent it to Ketchikan, borrowed a pickup truck, threw it in the back of the truck, rolled into the yacht club, and stacked it really carefully on top of a dock cart, and then we repelled it down the ramp. <laughs> So it wouldn't run away <laughs> and then swung it back into the boat using the oh, boom. Man. And then my stepdad hopped on and See, this south. is why Katie is a su- successful R2AK person. <laughs> we have a, a, another podcast, actually episode 15, where we talk about engineless cruising. And um, and I've cruised without an engine, but this sounds like a whole different ball game. But what do you do? What do you have to do to prepare to get in the mindset? You've done a lot of boating and a lot of sailing, but this is different. What do you have to do to prepare to get in the mindset of not having that engine because it's somewhere on a pallet somewhere? <laughs> well, I spent some time uh, sailing what, in 2000, I think in 2003, my husband and I sailed from San Francisco um, down through Mexico over to Hawaii and back to San Francisco again. And um, we had very little money and that engine really never worked. So it was super good preparation. We uh, blew into Hilo Harbor with no engine and realized what a tiny harbor it was and Mm -hmm. threw the anchor out and screeched to a stop in front of the mangroves. Um, But, you know, (laughs) up to leaving, before we left to cross over to Hawaii, you know, we spent a lot of time pulling into anchorages, assuming that and pretending that the engine had already failed. So anytime that we could, we would just sail into anchor because we knew that sucker wasn't going to last. <laughs> yeah, yeah pract- uh, practice. It is a totally different mentality, I think. And and uh, mm-hmm. you have to, or at least this is my own experience, but it seems like you have to be a lot more, uh, you have to have a lot more options. Like you constantly have to be looking for bailout you know, options or you know, alternate things. And I think uh, in particular up here where the currents are so weird, you know, like if you don't have an engine and you're trying to sail into a certain spot, you know, chances of you actually being able to get there may or may not happen. And, and the other, the other challenges around here is you can be, you can touch the rocks, you know, the rock cliff and it's like 300 feet deep. (laughs) And so, you know, it's not like you can actually count on throwing out an anchor and and stopping yourself. So, Mm -hmm. so, so I, I usually just, kind of have a bailout plan where you know there's a current option and i just go with the current even though it's not the right direction you know you you just kind of have to keep your options open yeah you have to know what your forward and your backward bailouts are Mm -hmm. and just know that if you're trying to work your way through some narrow passage you might need to just abort and go back how is that for morale if you have to turn around and and you lose a few miles. It depends on how awake the people are. Like my, my friend, I was trying to convince that we need to go that way because we're going this way. 
you just make something up, you know, and then they're fine. Well, and you just know that it could have gone yeah. a lot worse. <laughs> you kept going. <laughs> yeah. Um, pro- problem solvers are, are are excellent to have on the boat. And, you know, uh, we, our pill drive broke three times. And, and then the final time, you know, it's good to have people who uh, are good at, you know, coming up with al- alternate ideas. I mean, you know, it's mm-hmm. the MacGyver thing maybe a little bit or, you know, just, you know, kind of being able to be calm and yeah. work, work on a solution. Always just keep working on the solution, right? Things then are going you, to hell. You just keep working on the solution. Then you also have to pack. Yeah, you have to be like a very, you have to be a very mellow mad scientist. Then you yes. also have to pack all the tools that you would need and maybe some spare yeah. parts or some things you might not think you need, but you'd have or, to have or some. Or not, or not. I mean, frankly, I think it, that's another part of the puzzle because, you know, I do know teams who have brought like every spare part in the book. And I do know teams. And it slows you yeah, down. Yeah, exactly. It slows you down. Or you do, or you just take the bare necessities and then you make things you make things work with what you can find. When Ben and I bought our boat that we have now, it was in Panama, and it had been sitting baking in the sun for months and months, for a long time. And who knows what? Well, we knew what kind of condition it was in because we had done, flown down there for the survey. Um, so we were packing our duffel bags, all the stuff we needed. We were going to be in Panama for a while, and then um, we had these big travel plans in this boat that needed a lot of fixing. And so we're packing tools and we're weighing each duffel because you can only take 50 pounds, right, on the airplane. And we're only taking three duffels. And um, and I this one duffel bag was full and it was like super, super heavy, super overweight. Yeah. So I started taking stuff out and I kept weighing it. It was really overweight. And then finally I get down to the bottom of the duffel and there is this giant wrench, this massive wrench. And I pull it out and I'm like, what is this doing there? And Ben's like, we might need it. Yeah. We might need it. I'm like, I am not sacrificing 15 pounds of weight of other stuff for this wrench that we might need for one single thing. Yeah. Well, the good news on this race also, I mean, you can... If you have to stop and go to the hardware store, you can, and that's mm-hmm. that's available for the first half, you know. Mm-hmm. And yeah. yeah, I've had you know the hardware store in what was it, Port Hardy? Oh, well, I can't remember. But anyway, you know they'll open up the hardware store. Someone will show up with a pickup truck and get you, and ask if you need dinner, um, and then go open up the hardware store to buy the you know battery that you need or or whatever. It's everyone's tracking you. Mm-hmm. And if you end up onshore with a need, it's going to just materialize. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. That's awesome. It sounds like there's a lot of enthusiasm and support for this race up in the, up in that area. I think as, as far as extra gear and all that, I mean, our our you know thought is that we're just treating this like a backpacking trip. So if you can just bring enough gear that you know your say your your 50 pound pack, so you have all the stuff in that 50 pound pack that you think you're going to need for a seven day hike. If you can do that, you're mm-hmm. golden. I draw the line at safety gear, and mm-hmm. it's true that you know you can go overboard probably with that. But you know, basic emergency gear, you know, that's like a must. I don't really care how heavy or how much of that you know there is really. But. I like the backpacking analogy because the more you guys describe the race and we more talk about it, and what appealed to me was that it seemed like a combination of sailing or rowing and survival skills. And Jeff, you emailed me and you said, this isn't a sailboat race. It's an adventure race. And I think that's really what oh, you mean by this. Yeah, that's, that's totally true. Yeah, the, like on the Washington 360, the one interesting thing that I saw in that race, and, and again, you know, if you don't know what that was, it was a substitute race for R2AK because R2AK was canceled. 
and it has some similar characteristics, but it's all kind of in civilization. But the interesting thing about that is that there were people there who were really good sailors and they were in that mindset of sailing. And you really have to make sure that you don't get trapped in that mindset because they would do things like they were trying to eke out that last, you know, little teeny bit of wind when if they would have dropped the pedal drive in or started rowing, then that would have been more advantageous. Or, you know, you forget that, oh yeah, instead of trying to tack and work my way over to this current line or this wind line, we just row over there, right? You just like go get that wind line. Or sometimes it could be even more time efficient to anchor and wait till the current's in your favor rather than pushing hard against it for Yeah, because you're wearing out your crew if you're trying to fight Mm -hmm. the current, right? Then that is the thing that can be bad for morale, I finally learned, is sometimes it's better just to stop and get a little bit of sleep rather than try to fight it all night, but you can't always mm-hmm. do that. You know, if you're out in some crazy eddy, the one particular that I've gotten caught in twice off of Pender Island, there's nowhere to go and you just can't get yourself to that place that lets you get to sleep. So you just suck it up and you know that you're going to do circles all mm-hmm. night long. Yeah. I think it's not necessarily, it's not necessarily quitting. I mean, you know, call it strategic anchoring, but my, <laughs> my thought is that, you know, I would, I would not anchor CR, but we don't have to stop. So we're going to have a crew of five. And so we're going to check in with you after the race. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But if you are anchored, you know, it would be because there's absolutely no way you can make any headway or there's no advantage of being swept and doing the great circle loop and hooking in with a different current that's actually going the right way or a wind line that's going the right way. So when you sail in the Northwest or you broke something, the, the shortest route is not always the direct route. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, they, people talk about the great circle route up here when they race sailboats. And it's so true. I mean, you can either, you know, intentionally sail around or I've been in races where like Port Townsend is notorious for this. You're like trying to get out around the point at Port Townsend. You can't make it to the buoy and you just say, forget it. You turn around and you just go with the current and you kind of get swept out into the outflowing you know, current that's going to the strait. Mm-hmm. And you just kind of do this big loop. Mm-hmm. I think the key is, you know, use anchoring if you have to. Uh, but only only if you're really using it to your advantage. So it's sailing, it's rowing, it's tr- strategic survival skills, it's troubleshooting. It sounds like you could be a fantastic sailor, but like maybe my mountaineering skills might be advantageous for me in this case. Um, Tenacious, and so, tenacity. Yes, you, you know, you it. get all of those from lots of these survival outdoor pursuits. But what else are you doing right now for training? Like you're probably, you're probably, <laughs> you're probably rowing a lot. Is that like, uh, I, I am notorious for spending zero time on my boat prior to this race and zero time training. It's just, I get really busy at work and I have all the best intentions. And the, the last year that I raced, I literally had never been on the boat before the day of the race. I, I just, I'm terrible at the pre, I love the race. I'm terrible at the pre-planning and the mm-hmm. prep. It's, it turns into kind of a mad dash. But there the must be minute. something. There must be something. Maybe you're not <laughs> training for the race, but maybe who you are and your hobbies and the things you just do in life anyways are a little bit of training. Well, I, I think the thing that draws all of us, and it definitely is the thing that brings people coming back, is the community. It's this whole group of equally crazy people that all just love this thing. And so there's a lot of, you know, chit-chatting online and strategy and talking about, you know, this or that equipment. I'm in the middle of maybe redesigning the sail plan for my boat with um, the guy who built it for the race. And he's building 
his own Doug Shoop team Yay. perseverance. So he's building another one for the race. So we'll be competitors each using a boat that he built. But we've been talking about how we can maybe modify the sail plan because as it is, it doesn't reef. It's got four different size sails. And if the wind comes up, you're in a position where now you're trying to take a larger sail mm -hmm. off. It's a sleeve and put on a smaller sail. And if you've looked at the Angus row cruisers at all, um, Colin Angus is, you know, on the smaller side of humans and Neither Doug nor I are <laughs> the same size as Colin. So it's one thing for Colin to be jumping all over this boat that he designed, like he's some kind of little like sea sprite, <laughs> you know, whereas <laughs> the rest of us, <laughs> the rest of us uh, maybe need a little more. Well, let's just say that it would be great if we could reef. <laughs> but I guess the other thing, you know, you, you talked for a minute, Jeff, about uh, safety stuff. And along with that, the thing that we've always put a lot of effort into is making sure that we're squared away for first aid. Mm -hmm. And I let that take up a lot of space. But that's because we did one year have a pretty crazy injury. And then that gets to the point where you're deciding, you know, you know how isolated you are. That was other than the tooth? What was the... Wait, was there's the a tooth? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, my husband lost a, um, a cap on mm -hmm. one race and we had it kind of kept safe in a little bag of mouthwash that everyone thought was yeah. pee because of the color. <laughs> That's, you shouldn't have, you shouldn't have told me that because I really did think it was pee. Well, let's yeah. go with that. Okay. It's, it's, you know, <laughs> sterile. That's right. <laughs> but no, the, the first year uh, we were as, just as we were heading out into the Strait of Georgia and it was immediately following one of those really long, horrible, difficult nights where you make up no ground and go in circles um, my sister got up and all decided to, you know, raise morale by making oatmeal for breakfast, um, proceeded to dump the entire pot of steaming hot oatmeal onto her hand and her entire hand puffed up into one giant blister. And we had to decide, do we keep going or not? And, you know, she had to cut the sleeve of her foul weather gear and her, her dry suit to get them on and off. So she now no longer has a functioning dry suit just because she can't fit it over her hand. And not only oh that, but gosh. she can't help with sail changes or we wouldn't let her touch anything. Can but, you drop um, off one person or do you have to finish with the whole crew? You can drop off. You can't gain. But then, you know, two people... I didn't want to get right? rid of her. Yeah. You, know? <laughs> you want to finish. She you didn't want to go. that far together. It, so It was a gnarly injury though. So, you know, it's kind of looking at, are you ready to go into the wilderness with something like that? And, and other people have had really pretty scary injuries too. That's a, that's a scary choice um, to make because if you know you're only going to get more remote each day that you continue on and that injury, that that burn could get infected and it could get worse and worse or it could start to heal. And so you're kind of betting on it healing and with the help of whatever first aid knowledge you come with and whatever first aid stuff you come with. And you could have a giant first aid kit. Our boat came with this massive suitcase first aid kit. But, you know, some people think, let me just buy the best first aid kit I possibly can. But there's a problem with that if you don't know how to use the sutures or the blood pressure cuff or all these other things that come in these big first aid kits. That's why one of the years at the pre-race party, um, Jefferson Healthcare sat everyone down and taught them how to suture a pig's foot. Awesome. Nice. <laughs> I actually I actually had to give myself stitches one time. Now I was not nearly Just remote like the like, like the race to Alaska, but I was, you know, maybe a couple days and um I probably didn't need to, but I thought if I stitch this up myself, I don't have to go anywhere and have it done. So good practice. We're, we're, bringing, Three a, we're bringing a vet, so we we're counting on him to do yeah, all that stuff. Perfect. We can't we gotta keep him healthy though. 
Right, if the vet gets yeah, hurt. Yeah, then we're in trouble. And what do you all bring for communication? Are there any sort of requirements for keep for the race masters to keep track of the boats? Is there any sort of communication requirements? Yep, each boat has a spot tracker. Wait, um, spot, that's people just still mandatory. use spot you trackers? Have to pay. I feel like they're kind of old-fashioned. It's, it's the backbone of this <laughs> race. Use spot trackers. <laughs> yep. And, you know, it's interesting because after about day three, they do get a little spotty. Um, <laughs> you know, you have to really manage the battery life and look at it and make sure, you know, it tends to go to sleep if you stop an anchor and then doesn't wake up. So you have to keep an eye on it if you want someone to actually know where you're at. Mm-hmm. And then I always bring a, an inReach. I guess it's Garmin now, not Delorme. But I always have an inReach just so I can text. You know, I've got kids at home, and I just want to know that I'm in, right. in contact. And then also, if you but, need, you, if know, you have an emergency, years, then you have that inReach. In the spot tracker, you can't call somebody with that, can you? No, it's just a locator. Yeah, you can yeah. hit the button. The you know, I'm in trouble button. Yeah, but a lot of times you can have a urgent situation where you need to communicate something and you can accomplish a lot with just that ability to do so without needing a rescue squad to come find you so just having that yep. sat phone and that ability to communicate probably is really helpful i think i think you still have to realize that there are parts of the race where if, even if you call though you know helps probably a good three hours out mm-hmm. yeah and i have to admit that i did call the coast guard one year um, what happened? <laughs> and they were nowhere near me and probably weren't going to be able to get to me, but they were really great about keeping tabs on us and helping us find a good place to hide. It was one of those things where we made the decision to go out on the outside to look for wind. And man, did we ever get the wind. It was a gale. I think it was the what third of four gales that year, the really windy mm-hmm. year. And um, we were surfing down waves outside of Aristazabel Island. I think that's how you pronounce it. And at one point, we just snapped the boom in half. Wow. (laughs) So there we were, you know, (laughs) you're not going to row your way out of that. And we had just the head sail. And I called the Coast Guard and I said, hey, you know, we are not in trouble right now, but I just want you to be aware that if anything else goes wrong, we will be. Right. So they just set up a, a watch schedule with us. We checked in every half an hour and they found a little place for us to hide, but then we, we just couldn't, with the wind direction that we had um, and the swell, we weren't going to make it into that opening. So they were really good about helping us kind of reroute and find another way in. And we just threaded through the rocks. If you, if you look at a chart out there, it's terrifying. Mm-hmm. It's just, mm-hmm. it's like a minefield of boulders, but they talked us through it and we're pretty good about understanding why we couldn't you know, take the first path in because of the wind direction, which was surprising to me, you know, as not necessarily sailors. I think, though, what you said is really important. You said, we're not in any trouble yet, but if anything else goes wrong, we will be. I feel like that's how all of the, all everything happens almost. It's like death by a thousand yeah. paper cuts. It's not the one thing that caused the demise. It's all these little things that added up, which as as you were saying earlier, Jeff, then you need to be creative into troubleshooting all these little things. Fix one thing that makes it that much easier for you when something else goes wrong. Because inevitably on an adventure race like this, there's going to be things that go wrong. Yeah. And then, you know, in that situation, then the Coast Guard's prepared mm-hmm. if we do say, okay, now yeah. go. <laughs> you know, so I know that they mentally had their boat fired up and knew exactly where we were. So that was going to leave us in the water for way less time. So what, <laughs> if that's the way. What it are the rules about assistance? Can you get assistance at at ports? Can you call for assistance? You said you can go to the hardware store, but what other kinds of assistance is allowed? You just can't have like pre-planned, 
you know, drops. You can't have someone at home doing weather routing for you. You can't have, you know, someone bringing you Mm pre-scheduled your water, but you can drop in and go find what you need, or you can call on the radio for help. Or, you know, if there's a cruise ship going by and you want to call and see if they have extra stakes, like go for it. (laughs) (laughs) You you can't have a dedicated sag wagon. You know, you can't have a powerboat following you along, you know, tossing you goodies. Yeah. But if they show up and toss you goodies, that's fine. You just can't have coordinated it ahead of time. But I think what you're really asking is, you know, if I had needed Coast Guard help or if asked someone to tow me, in general, you can go back to that point and uh-huh. start again, as long as it didn't gain you any ground. Okay. Is that true? I'd have, I mean, I feel like I want to yeah. call race boss and ask him. Well, there's always that rule number eight, where if they have to consult their lawyers, yeah. you're out. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, <laughs> I think there's precedent for people getting some level of assistance and then backtracking yeah. and starting back where they started. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, we need to wrap up soon, but I am so (laughs) grateful to have you both on and to have a chance to talk about the race to Alaska because now I'm even more more motivated to give it a try. Um, I'm going to be rooting for you both. I'm going to check in at the end and see how well you did. The, The tracker is fun to watch. Thank you so much for talking with me. All right. Thanks. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced by Teresa and Ben Carey. Angela McIntyre is our assistant producer, and the music is by Tim Erickson, my brother. You can subscribe to The Morning Muster wherever you get your podcasts, or visit morsealpha.com. You can also find us on Instagram, at Expeditions. Until next time, stay found. To the